0: So what's going on with all this uh, not yet completed vote counting? And what's the story with these lawsuits affecting the election? And what about that big blue tidal wave, which was supposed to emerge and didn't seem to? And what about a Biden-Harris economic policy platform? Uh, Is that gonna be good for the country? These are the things we're gonna be talking about today on the Independent Outlook coming to you today from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We're just across the bay from San Francisco. and We try and bring you a fresh and independent point of view on current events. Uh, let me just pause for a moment before we get into those topics, however, and uh, point out that today, the day we're uh, live streaming this, is uh, Veterans Day, November 11th. And uh, we are uh, thinking back to those who sacrificed a lot uh, for our country, for our liberties, and the good order that we do enjoy. Um, I'm wearing this poppy here. Uh, because uh, November 11th date was chosen because it's uh, the Armistice Day at the end of World War I and uh, uh, called Remembrance Day throughout the Commonwealth. And in the Commonwealth countries, especially in Great Britain, uh, they do often wear the poppy on November 11th in remembrance of the tragic uh, sacrifice and really waste of World War I among the flower of youth of their countries and ours, remembering the poppies on Flanders Field. So, okay, let me welcome um, our guest today. I am delighted to have two of my colleagues who are both affiliated with the Independent Institute. Let me first welcome uh, William J. Watkins, Jr. Nice to have you, Bill.
1: Good to see you, Graham.
0: And I'm glad you've got that great bow tie on, of course. Um, uh, Bill Watkins is a research fellow here at the Independent Institute. He's the author of a number of books, including uh, Crossroads of Liberty, a book called Patent Trolls, a book called Reclaiming the American Revolution. He served as a prosecutor and defense lawyer, published in the South Carolina Law Review, Duke Journal of Constitutional Law, uh, and also in Forbes and USA Today, a bunch of other places too. And also on this day of all days, let me thank you for your service to our country. Tell us how you served.
1: I was in the U.S. Army in the late nineteen eighties as an enlisted man, straight out of high school. Great experience; wouldn't change, wouldn't trade it for the world.
0: I can imagine. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, Our my second colleague today is Dr. Michael Munger, uh, who is a senior fellow here at the Independent Institute, also co-editor of our journal, The Independent Review. Uh, Mike Munger is a professor of political science at Duke University, uh, author of. Two or three or four books, I forget how many. Um, He was also the staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission, been published in the New York Times. uh, And uh, we are very grateful to have you with us today, Mike Munger.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, We're not getting good sound out of you, so just make sure you've got your settings where they should be. Okay, so um, let's get into today's conversation. Um, There's voting. Counting of votes still going on, um, going on longer than many of us expected. Uh, I just read this morning in the National Review that uh, there, Joe Biden's margin in Pennsylvania is 45,000 votes, in Nevada, 36,000, in Wisconsin, 20,000, in Georgia, 14,000, and in Arizona, 12,000. And so uh, the question is arising in almost all these cases, whether um, these vote counts include votes which were inappropriately counted somehow, and there's different issues in different states. Um, of all these states, it kind of looks to me, uh, Bill Watkins, like uh, Pennsylvania and Georgia may be the places where the most likely turnarounds may be, maybe also Arizona. Would you, would you agree about that? Are those Are Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania the ones most likely to be affected by uncertainties in this counting?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. We see recounts going on. We have some litigation pending, uh, even a case likely to be heard in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, So those are your big ticket states where we have issues. Now in
0: Georgia with that, I think there's 14,149 vote margin for Joe Biden. I understand that uh, the Republican secretary of state in Georgia has already announced uh, a recount intended. I don't know either if you know the answer to this. I sure don't know. When they do these recounts, how often do they change the outcomes?
1: The literature that I've read and seen is not very often. It's really a small percentage of votes that changes. Uh, Nothing Mm -hmm. like the thousands that uh, Donald Trump would need uh, to flip some of those states. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't hold out a lot of uh, expectation Uh, that we aren't going to see a Biden presidency because of recounts.
0: Yeah, that does seem unlikely. Um, Arizona, there are some other issues there, but again, you'd you'd have to like overcome the 12,813 vote margin to change Arizona. So the biggest issues that I find most legally fascinating are probably in Pennsylvania. Actually, there's 45,616 vote margin at present for Joe Biden, Um, but there are legal challenges there. Um, I'm interested actually in some of the legality of that Bill Watkins, even though I'm not really persuaded that it's gonna turn, turn anything around, but what's, what's up in Pennsylvania legally with that vote count?
1: Well, you're right, it might not turn things around, but it sure does open the door to see how sausage is made, and it's not a pretty thing. Uh, we see the Pennsylvania Supreme Court essentially rewriting a statute Uh, to allow more time for mail-in ballots uh, against what the legislature specifically uh, decreed. Election night, 8 p.m., all mail-in ballots have to be in and received. Uh, If they're not, they shouldn't be counted. Uh, The court thought otherwise. You mean the
0: the Pennsylvania Supreme Court?
1: Correct. And
0: how far far in advance of the election did they make that decision?
1: Oh, you know, this was back... uh, a month or so before the election there, mm-hmm. um, maybe a month and a half at most. Um, and what's sad about that is they use the excuse of the COVID pandemic as a natural disaster, which gives them, they claim authority under Pennsylvania's free election clause, which essentially says all elections should be free and fair.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they
1: take that simple provision to give them the power to change the dates when ballots should be in, even though there's nothing keeping the state legislature from meeting, even though in March uh, and later this year in the midst of COVID, understanding the pandemic, the legislature met and via political compromise specifically chose not to alter that deadline.
0: Okay, but, well, the funny thing about this, you know, I, I'm I'm not a, a lawyer. Um, And when I first heard about some of these issues, I said to myself, well, yeah, that's reasonable. I mean, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have extra time to get them in because everybody's sick and their grandma's coming down sick and stuff. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court seems like they were just trying to be reasonable, but you're not talking about whether it was or not, was or was not a good idea to extend the time. You're talking about whether they had the authority to change the time, isn't that the point?
1: That is correct. We're not talking about whether it's good policy. For the people in the US Postal Service to have a little bit of extra time to get all the mail in ballots. Because that just seems
0: nice. Like, don't people want to be nice? That seems nice. Graham, you're just trolling. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Exactly.
1: But from, well,
0: you're a political scientist, Mike Munger. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) the, The importance of having different functions between the judiciary and the legislature is important on some like high level, isn't it? Let me just ask you to address that before we go back to the details.
2: Well, there's also a hierarchy of division of of, uh, powers and the separation of powers. And if there is anything that deserves deference from the judiciary, it's the time, place and manner of elections. And so the Pennsylvania legislature made a decision. Now, I have had some arguments with my colleagues at Duke. That's probably hard for you to imagine. But my my (laughs) colleagues and I in the Duke Political Science Department have some disagreements about this. Their argument is, yes, but that legislature is controlled by the Republicans. Well, there's nothing that says we should have substantial deference to the legislature unless it's controlled by the Republicans. And in that case, it's up to the judiciary. That would be a remarkable rule. So, but I I actually think that's actually pretty close to where the Supreme Court came down, was we cannot. So Bill said, wait, they looked at it in March. Yeah, but they're Republicans. And so (laughs) we'll go and look at it. And then on the merits, the judiciary will make a decision on the merits given your trolling claim just now. Well, it would be nice. It would be nice. There's something wrong with you.
0: So coming back to what Bill, what you were saying a minute ago, Bill, um, I kind of slid over it. I intended to come back to it. But you pointed out, and I think later the U.S. Supreme Court pointed out, that the Pennsylvania legislature, I think in March of 2020, after the pandemic was underway, actually had the opportunity to do something to make it easier for voting in a pandemic. And they explicitly, consciously chose not to. Is that what you said?
1: No, that's absolutely right. They had set a deadline, which is reasonable on its face for election evening, 8 p.m., all ballots to be in. And they chose not to modify that because of COVID or any other concerns. Were they
0: aware of the COVID problem at the time?
1: Yes, sir, they were. We were in the midst of a global pandemic.
0: Right, we sure were. I remember what it was like back in March, not that different from now. So they considered the possibility, they actually refreshed the legislation, Act 77 of the Pennsylvania legislature was re-voted on in March, I think, uh, of this year. Isn't that what it was?
1: That's, that's absolutely right. They looked at, revamped a number of provisions in their electoral law and uh, chose specifically not uh, to tamper with the deadline for the mail-in ballots.
0: So then uh, the Republicans then appealed this uh, in October, right, to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, calling foul. U.S. Supreme Court at that point was after, Amy, uh, after Bader Ginsburg had passed away um, and they had eight members, right? And so the U.S. Supreme Court could have in October taken up this problem, but they didn't. Why not, Bill?
1: Well, first there was a move for a stay to stay the state court's decision. And that was a four to four vote. You have to have five votes uh, for the stay. Uh, so it was tied, so no stay. Then we have a request to have an expedited hearing before the election to resolve this matter. Um, even uh, the more conservative textualist, uh, originalist judges uh, declined to do that because there simply wasn't enough time to have this fully briefed, properly argued um, before mm-hmm. the election.
0: hmm Wow. So the U.S. Supreme Court did not interpose itself at that point, but they did somehow um, request or demand that the votes received after the original deadline be held separately just in case something. Isn't that right?
1: No, that's correct. We have uh, three justices uh, indicate that they had serious questions about the legality of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. They believe that it was likely counter to the federal constitution, which vests with the state legislatures, um, not only the time, place and manner of setting elections, but uh, in choosing electors and the whole process there, uh, not the courts. And they made it abundantly clear uh, in denying the uh, request to expedite the writ of certiorari, Um, That this case still could be heard. And just in case it was, let's segregate
0: uh, Mm -hmm. those
1: ballots um, that came in late. And Graham, it's not only late ballots, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court also crafted a rule that uh, let's say you can't uh, read the postmark and it's ineligible, uh, not legible. well, unless you can show us by preponderance of the evidence that something's dirty with this ballot, we're going to count it. Um,
0: oh. Just making mean up, even if it didn't have a postmark before election day?
1: Correct. If it was smeared, altered, uh, whatever. Absent. You have to absent. The burden is on uh, the challenger uh, to show by a preponderance of the evidence that that's a bad vote, a that bad ballot. Wild.
0: I mean... Do either of you uh, uh, mike do you have any idea how many ballots we're talking about here that are still potentially under contest through this particular supreme court potential case
2: generally the word for these is cured ballots and there's yeah. a number of things that might have happened that where the ballot would normally be thrown out it could be late it could be not signed so the it depends how many of those you count My my impression is that the ones that arrived after 8 p.m uh just those are a few thousand so it's nowhere near the 40,000 or so that would be required right if you look at all of the other ballots that have been cured because uh, you can contact someone and said look you don't have your signature can you come down and sign it or can you email us a pdf with your signed affidavit mm-hmm. then the number of cured ballots starts to get a bit larger i'm afraid i don't know the number but my mm-hmm. impression is it's not more than 5,000 total so uh-huh. while this is an interesting mm-hmm. issue as bill said uh, even if it's five thousand and ninety percent of them are for Biden, it's not going to change the outcome if those were thrown out or if they're counted.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder when I'm thinking about this, whether the U.S. Supreme Court would decline to pe- take up the case now that they're fully staffed simply on the basis that it's unlikely to change the vote outcome. There seems to be a significant legal issue here. It'd be kind of nice to get it cleared up uh, in this particular case, but would they take it up since it's probably arithmetically moot. What do you think, Bill?
1: It would be in a nice dodge and would be within Chief Justice Roberts' character to try to keep the court from appearing partisan. And if they had to strike down um, this order of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, even though it's clearly uh, judicial legislation, but because it wouldn't likely affect the outcome yeah you can see an easy dodge there that uh let's move on to something else uh, roberts would say
0: yeah but i mean the supreme court from its vantage point i mean they're not vote counters they they can't officially say that they know the arithmetic so it seems like it would be kind of a weasel way out of
1: it well roberts is a first-class weasel a highly educated one at that
0: (laughs) Mike, I liked what you said a few minutes ago about cured votes, because one of you said at the beginning of this that it's like, you know, we see how the sausage is made, and I'm thinking, okay, cured sausage. Maybe that's what's really going on <laughs> Delicious. I have not made that
2: connection. I'm going to use that. Thank you.
0: Totally delicious. I can hardly wait to eat it. Um, I'm, I'm looking at uh, this wonderful blog post that uh, Bill Watkins actually posted on our Beacon website at independent.org. Uh, i encourage people to visit our website and see this piece and others related to it. But in your blog, you quoted from the order that Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch assigned their name to before Barrett could do so. It says here, um, although the court denies the motion to expedite, the petition for certiorari remains before us. And if it is granted, the case can then be decided under a shortened schedule. So what could trigger them picking it up while it remains before them?
1: Well, obviously they could see this as a issue of constitutional and national importance that you cannot have state courts writing election law when the constitution says state legislatures should do so. And what the, really, I mean, it's indefensible what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did in my opinion. And we have a lot of talk in this election and Biden talking about a commission to examine the court system. Uh, this is an example of the problem of judges making policy rather than leaving it to legislators to make policy.
0: I mean, it is very clear if you look at the section one of article two, and then uh, I think it's um, section four of article one of the US Constitution, which I have in my pocket, uh, that these determinations are reserved to the legislatures of states. Um, you know, as a political scientist and a, and a teacher, uh, a Mike, um, it's really hard for ordinary people, and maybe for your students to, to really take seriously the kind of arguments that Bill has just made, because it just seems like, you know, it's reasonable people want, well, how can, how do you as the teacher uh, enable students to understand the significance of these role and jurisdictional distinctions that the Constitution makes?
2: actually so many of my students loathe trump so much and their complaint about trump is that he's been ignoring the constitution is that i can usually make a judo move and say well you care so much about the constitution i think you're right fair enough we should the the whole point is that we are ruled by laws not by people and so but then look at this that sometimes when you go up to a stoplight and it's red yeah, there's no cars coming the other way. And you still have to sit there. That's I what sit the Constitution there. I sit there. Well, that's <laughs> what the Constitution means. Sometimes there's rules that are inconvenient and you think, you know, we could do something good. Well, yes, but you have to do it according to the process that the Constitution spells out, because otherwise you're just being ruled by mobs. So I I don't know that that's persuasive, but I actually have found a number of students are more susceptible to that argument precisely because the criticism so much is that Trump has ignored the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Whether that's true or not, since they yeah believe I'm it, wondering.
0: Yeah, they believe that though. That's how they feel. That, that well, it really makes them is.
2: susceptible. Fair enough. Then let's take let's us let, I, I will grant that. Now, what does the Constitution say about this?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting to me. I, I'm just. I'm going to come back to the legality in a minute, but, you know, uh, I'm more uh, trained as a political philosopher than anything. And I'm really struck by how many people who are celebrating um, uh, Joe Biden's apparent win here saying things like, for example, in many op-eds and other places, uh, where finally this is a victory for for truth and science over, you know, brute opinion and preference of Trump. And it's kind of weird because. For, you know, 30-some, 40 years, we've heard uh, those on the left in the academy in higher education telling us there's no such things as facts or truth. Everything is just subjective opinion, you know, postmodern outlook and so forth. And so it almost seems to me like President Trump sometimes and some of his acolytes uh, uh, are saying, you know, okay, you say there's no truth, we're just going to assert ourselves. And then suddenly now, you know, when the tide is turning, all of a sudden, all the postmodern leftist academic types they're all big for truth, like what happened?
2: In fact, checks and yeah they're, fact they, checks. They're, they're, they're happy to say that we should have some sort of meter at the bottom of every political statement, where someone's made <laughs> right. a judgment about how. We had a guy yesterday come to my class who was talking about the fact that Donald Trump had made a statement that. Uh, He had done more for african americans than any other president since lincoln and he said we checked that we did a survey of academic historians really so you asked people who range from the left to the far left and it turns out they didn't like trump that's very objective
0: yeah that's a, a stunning way to find truth i mean truly i was disturbed back what is it now two or three years ago uh when Kellyanne Conway talked about alternative facts, that made me uncomfortable. But it made me uncomfortable precisely because it sounded like all the postmodernist anti-fact academics that I'd been contending with in the academy for decades. And here's Kellyanne Conway saying "You know, alternative facts. Well, maybe through this whole ordeal, we may discover that uh, research and evidence and facts really do matter that they are not merely matters of power assertion, um, but some things can be determined. And I think we get back to the strict text of the U.S. Constitution. It does lay out jurisdictional rules about who gets to make what decisions. And going back to Bill Watkins' point earlier, uh, the state legislatures are the ones who make these determinations, which is a good thing. So, okay, um, do you think, are you predicting, Bill, that the Supreme Court will take this Pennsylvania case up?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it will. they would be hard-pressed not to after the strong language of at least three justices, and you had four uh, before Justice Barrett vote uh, for a stay, uh, I think it would be likely that they would uh, expedite uh, hearing on this thing uh, before the end of the month.
0: Yeah, yeah, it just seems like it's hard for me to imagine her not agreeing with Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch knowing what her judicial philosophy has been heretofore. So that does seem extremely likely. But it just brings us back to the fact that um, even if uh, they overruled the Pennsylvania Supreme Court it probably wouldn't change the vote totals. Probably the Georgia uh, you know, uh, recounts not gonna change the vote totals. Uh, do either of you know anything about Arizona, about facts on the ground there indicating that that might be more fluid than it appears?
2: I have no knowledge of yeah. any fluidity in Arizona, yeah. that, that, that there isn't even the allegation of the claim. Georgia and Pennsylvania seem to be the ones where there might be something moving.
0: Right, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's probably not gonna change the outcome, but you know, what's interesting, uh, let me just take a quick look here. I'd love to look at my uh, 270 to win page where I can look at the numbers. Uh, this is where it stands right now. If I take Arizona and Georgia as undetermined, many places have already called Arizona, but you know, if you take away Pennsylvania, indeed, uh, Joe Biden drops to 259, unlikely as that is, but then Arizona really ought to be put back in uh, his uh, camp, and then he's at 270. Um, it, it's really hard to see how this is gonna turn around because you'd have to turn around, you know, at least three states here to make this work. It's not It's not just Pennsylvania. You know, I've taken Pennsylvania out here, given him Georgia, given him Arizona. He's, he's still got 270, but there is a possibility, um, electorally and constitutionally. Uh, Mike Munger, you can talk about this a bit, where uh, in fact we don't have an outcome by the specified date, and then there are some constitutional provisions that kick in. Can you explain that to us?
2: I, I I expect Bill knows more about it than I do, but the this this would be uncharted territory. We we haven't had a presidential election decided by the House of Representatives. Well, it's for a charted long time. in the
0: constitutional text, but not in actual experience. Really,
2: not, we have not really worked the Twelfth Amendment. So right. the 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 Twelfth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution changed the way that the Electoral College works, but it also has provisions for what happens if there is no majority. So. December 8th is the so-called safe harbor date by which the secretaries of states or the legislatures have to have certified the totals uh, for the Electoral College. And then on December 14th, the Electoral College, in its majestic, decentralized way, will meet in each of the states. And yeah, they don't they,
0: actually meet together. They meet no, in they, their they states. No, they meet separately. And they, I think that's extremely important symbolically because it illustrates the fact that this is these are the states that are yeah. coming together. Well,
2: you don't want them in a big group. Who knows what would happen? So you you actually want them to be able to exercise their judgment, but on behalf of the states that they represent. And then this has to be sent and has to be received by the Congress by December 23rd, which tells you that communication technology has improved. They have from the 14th to the 23rd to receive this. Mm -hmm. Um, But if, then the reason the map you just put up is important, if the secretaries of state say, I decline to certify this result for the Electoral College because we're still undergoing a recount. And there's some chance that could happen in Georgia. Yes, Um, there is. If the total number of votes by December 14th is not 270 or greater for one of the two candidates, and it has to be for one of the two candidates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that's not true, then the task of choosing the president would go to the U.S. House of Representatives, Um, And I've always wondered in 2000 why it was that the U.S. Supreme Court intervened, because if nothing had been done, it would have gone to the House of Representatives, which Mm -hmm. at the time was controlled by the Republicans. George Bush would have been president. So I have shocked a number of my colleagues. Actually, George Bush did not steal the election. He was going to be president no matter what. Right. But in this case, Donald Trump would win and the reason is and i've not seen this on any of the media the 12th amendment also says that the house of representatives will vote not by individual member but by states so each state gets one vote and the republicans control 26 of the state delegations the democrats control 23 of the state delegations and Pennsylvania is split eight to eight so even though the democrats do still have a majority and that they had a bigger majority in the previous House, the one that this would actually be relevant for, Donald Trump would win the election if he can just play out the clock and get past December 14th. So all that's required for that is not that anybody reverses anything. All that happens, and it would be just enough as you showed, if Pennsylvania and Georgia are not certified by December 14th. that means that the Electoral College has not declared a majority and the president will be chosen by the House. Presumably, that means Donald Trump.
0: Bill. If those votes are not certified by, did you say the t- 14th was it or the 8th?
2: The 8th is the safe harbor day. They're supposed to yeah. have it done. The 14th is when they meet.
0: Yeah, and, and to certify it. So if if two those two states are not certified, um, people are gonna be confused because they know that ABC News and CNN have, have certified <laughs> the states, but they won't have been formally certified yet. If that were to happen, um, How could the Democrats contest that at that juncture, hypothetically? Could they? Seems like the court couldn't intervene because it's a political question and the Constitution specifies what to do.
1: Let's not uh, give short shrift to the court intervening in political questions. They shouldn't. Uh, they obviously have done so in the past, and you know a good point. Why not just hands off, you know, Bush v. Gore, uh, let the thing play out that way? So do you know you the don't answer? Know-
2: Why did they do that, Bill?
1: They planned it. I really have to have put a- him
2: behind the eight ball. It has always made me mad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, because we're trained that, you know, the, the court is the final answer on everything. It's the great oracle. So mm-hmm. I, I think, it, you know, to have some uh, modesty about your role in the system with such a quote unquote crisis, they just they couldn't leave well enough alone.
0: So could the Democrats contest the lack of certification on December 14th? And if so, how? And if not, then what's the next step? Just keep going, Bill, on that thought.
1: I think you would see uh, emergency um, injunctions and other matters brought in state courts. Uh, You might even have competing officials, depending on who controls uh, the state, uh, different offices trying to push through a certification process. I mean, it could get messy, it could get ugly, but Mm. technically if they're not certified as set forth uh, in the constitution and following the process, Nobody has the requisite number to win. Nobody's got their 270. Uh, it goes to the House of Representatives. It goes to the
0: house. Yeah, it really and, does. And you
1: know, history shows that can be a long and messy procedure, though there. Good point that Republicans do have a majority of states, but uh, think of all the shenanigans. If we go back in the day with Jefferson, Burr, mm-hmm. John Adams, mm-hmm. and uh, elections decided in the House of Representatives um, in the late uh, 1790s, and um, you have a revolution, of course, of 1800 with Jefferson being swept into power. But uh, those were messy procedures, a lot of politicking, a lot of give and take. Who knows what we could have?
0: Each delegation of members of the House then has to get together, if not in person, at least somehow virtually or digitally, figure out how many, what the preponderance of votes among themselves is in the delegation. That determines the state's vote. Pennsylvania won't have a vote. Isn't (laughs) that what you told me, Mike Munger?
2: Uh, They're they're split eight to eight, and so that in effect, yes, they will not have a vote. Um, It would what the democrats would have to try to secure uh before the 14th would be a a writ of mandamus that is they're trying to say the the court will compel a state official to provide a particular document so that's actually marbury versus madison that one of the very first decisions was an attempt to compel a state official to do their job and to to provide a certification and it I think it's very unlikely that the court would be willing to do that because that the that really is transgressing the boundary in a way that would would be egregious but it it's certainly possible that, but that's technically that's what they would have to do because the court could not well I don't know the court can do what it wants but the court could not possibly certify couldn't usurp the job of the state official but a writ of mandamus would say we are in effect usurping it by compelling this official to provide this certification.
0: You know, I'm, I think about all these permutations, I am in fact, you know, in some really visceral way grateful that the U.S. Constitution actually lays out a whole series of specified decision-making pathways that even though they haven't been used, <laughs> they exist. And if we stick to them, we can still come through a really hard constitutional crisis. Um, I guess we'll be seeing what happens. I, we're, we're joined, of course, today by a lot of people who are listening in and watching, uh, thinking through what we're saying. And uh, many of them are through our friends at ThinkSpot.com. We're grateful for their partnership. And I'm getting some interesting comments in our question box from uh, some of our ThinkSpot participants. One of them says, what about the computer glitch issues? Either of you think those are big enough to change numbers or persuade courts? I
1: think it's it's really going to, Come down to investigation, and uh, you know, uh, officials on both sides having a chance to look at this. Uh, I would be a bit shocked if it does change enough numbers. Uh, if you know, our big city machines are certainly famous for uh, voter fraud and uh, inventive techniques, and we certainly, you know, it's, this would be the first election. You think uh, you, you know, Kennedy, Nixon. Um, it's pretty much widely accepted by historians that there were uh, huge amounts of fraud, and that Nixon probably really won that election. But for the good of the country, he let wow. that go. and um, JFK yeah. assumed the presidency. So this is not something new, so to speak, in American politics. But we are um we have a president who's not afraid to again is you know kind of pull the lid back and let us see how things are really working mm-hmm. and how things are done and it's ugly it's scary uh it causes us perhaps lose some faith uh in our system uh, there so uh it's um it's a different time in that respect
0: it's nice to be reminded that uh, richard nixon did have some virtues and he did do that for the good of the country um worth worth remembering okay so um Unless you want to um, jump in there, Mike, I'm going to turn a corner. Okay. So uh, I was just reading in the Washington Post earlier today that uh, regarding the overall outcome of all the elections, and assuming Biden continues to hold this um, margin of election in the Electoral College, um, Joe Biden, it says would in the Post, would be the first Democratic president since Grover Cleveland in 1885 to take office with his party, not in control of both chambers. Um, uh, Biden says the post garnered a higher percentage of the popular vote 50.8% than any challenger to an incumbent since Franklin Roosevelt but he also appears to have won the presidency with the weakest house coattails of any president since John F Kennedy so I was getting some data on this and this this too was in uh today's Washington post very interesting uh these these are the coattails so not surprisingly, in 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had the biggest coattails in the House. He pulled in a whole bunch of Democrats into the House of Representatives. You know, Harry S. Truman, it goes down, LDBJ did pretty well. Uh, we get to George W. Bush, he didn't do real great. Um, uh, H. W. Bush, a little worse. Donald J. Trump, a little worse. Uh, Bill Clinton did a little worse. And here's uh, Joe Biden he had, except for the JFK election, which is here at the end, Joe Biden would have the weakest coattails ever. Uh, Somehow Americans wanted to vote for Joe Biden, but then a lot of them didn't want to vote for the corresponding uh, Democrat in their house races. And when I look at, of course, this last column, JFK, if what you just said is accurate, um, which I have every reason to believe, probably that 1960 race maybe wasn't even won by JFK and that's why he, he didn't have very good coattails. So weakest coattails ever. Uh, What does this mean? Do you think you're a political science, Mike? Let's turn to you, scientist. I'll turn to you on that.
2: Well, the the definition of coattails that you're using is the US House, and that's fair enough. That is a commonly used one. There's a lot of questions in political science whether coattails are even a thing or it's just something that we can measure. And so we've named it, which is pretty common in political science, I'm afraid, that uh, naming something substitutes for defining it. If you name
0: it and give it numbers, then it's real.
2: You can get journal article publications and that's all that really matters. Um, Across the board, Joe Biden underperformed compared to expectations. So one place that the polls did particularly badly, the polls were not that bad for um, Biden. If you think that the current results for the presidential race are going to stand up, they're, they're actually fairly accurate. But the predictions about a blue wave didn't come through at all. So it seems that whatever else you think about Biden, many voters like Biden a whole lot more than they like Nancy Pelosi, or than they whoever the local representative was running because the Republicans found it easy to associate House uh, candidates, Democratic House candidates with AOC or people who were embracing socialism. And so one of the one of the interesting thing, the the most interesting state in terms of coattails, I think, is Florida. Uh, Florida was a disaster for the Democrats. And it turns out that if you say socialism a lot, people whose parents came from Cuba or Venezuela or people who came from Venezuela think, you know, I don't think so. I would prefer to have a traditional sort of Republican candidate. In many cases, Latinos uh, are pretty conservative uh, socially. Yeah, they are. If you add the socialism thing, you get a wipeout in Florida. So in here in North Carolina, um, Trump won and the Senator Tillis unexpectedly, according yeah. to all the news media, Stunning. Won. And North Carolina was widely predicted to have been a democratic state. So the Biden was not able to deliver or else Biden was able to deliver, but his uh, attractiveness was overcome by the tin-eared ineptitude of the house races that were based on the achievement of it. Well, Here's the thing. They assumed Donald Trump was so far to the right, they could optimize by going way out to the left and still winning. And Biden said, no, no, I'm going to try to run in the center. And Biden won. But if you if you go out way to the left, guess what? The United States is mostly ruled by the center.
0: It, it makes me wonder if, if there were a Republican candidate uh, without sort of the Personal downsides of Donald Trump's style and so forth, but standing for all the same kind of propositions and policies, um, might have won. Might have won.
1: No, I think you. Know, that's a good point right there. That, and looking to the next election. You know, I hate the term Trumpism um, because the ideas and the issues that he was willing to tackle that other um, neoconservative candidates were not. Uh, are still there he did not invent them no. but he was he was just independent enough with his fortune and his bullheadedness that uh he was willing again, we might disagree with them on some issues, but he was willing to talk about America first and foreign policy though. Has he really delivered? Not so much, though he hasn't started any wars. I'll give him credit well, for that. Well, he got
0: the Middle East on a whole new course toward potential you know, rapprochement with Israel and the Arabs.
1: He did that, as well as you know, we might have different views on immigration, but he broke sort of the two-party monopoly on the standard line on immigration, as well as the two-party monopoly on the standard line on trade that has existed since NAFTA, Again, we might disagree uh, with some of the directions that he wanted to go there, but he started addressing issues that people cared about uh, and resonated with working class people, with the average American and flyover country. And if we can somehow get a candidate, uh, again, you're right, who doesn't have the personal faults that uh, stays off Twitter um, and you know many of the other just you know boorish things that Trump does, um, that could be a recipe for success. The recipe for disaster will be if the party thinks, ah, oh, let's go back to the days of Romney Ryan, or uh, oh, something yeah. like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really seems to I me. Mean, the weird thing about Donald Trump, politically speaking, is that he had those uh, oh, and call him porcupine spikes sticking out of him. Um, which was regrettable perhaps in terms of his public appeal, but maybe if he, if he wasn't so pugnacious, he wouldn't have been so bold on these policy issues. It would have been like all the other Republicans who were, didn't really want to stick their nose too far out of the usual groove.
2: The, the single biggest story here and the, the greatest overturning of the conventional wisdom is that this is just something that political Scientologists repeat to their students as if it were written on in stone. In a high turnout election, the Democrats will do well. No, this was a high turnout election. And the reason is people came out to vote for Donald Trump. So it may be that he is like a porcupine, but he did make people come and say, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. So it was a high turnout election and the Republicans did far better than expected. So a lot of my colleagues want to see Donald Trump as the cause. He is in effect. He is something that many people care about and it's not Trumpism, it is a kind of conservatism. Now it's one that I'm not very comfortable with, but it's a kind of conservative and we live in a democracy. In a democracy, people are going to find a representative who is able to represent their views and the Democrats are just gonna to have to deal with that.
1: And let's not forget this Graham, uh, we haven't talked about this, but a lot of Trump's appeal and his you know, frankly, success, anyone else is pugnacious and as difficult and rough in certain areas you know, should have gotten killed in election. But let's not forget the rioting in the streets. Yeah, so many true. Democrats uh, supporting uh, defund the police. Uh, law and order uh, is always, or at least is in recent memory, has been a good issue uh, for Republicans to run on. And you had people scared, out there. Uh, You know, before the election, you've got stores boarding up, not because of right-wing militias, but because of radical leftists in the street. Uh, The average American was scared and believed at least Donald Trump would try to protect them, whereas Joe Biden and company will pat the Jacobins on the back.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, people have been saying that we need to distinguish between a legitimate protest and violent looting. And I accept the distinction. However, in practice, it's been awfully hard to distinguish the one from the other. And Americans are just not keen on that. Moreover, there's a whole other dimension of this, which goes side by side with the looting and violence business, is that I think a lot of ordinary Americans just don't buy the woke agenda. They really don't buy this idea that there's this white privilege that everybody has, you know, even many Latinos are apparently guilty of. They don't really buy this idea that all men are pretty much, you know, horrible. Um, They just don't buy this idea that private property is horrible and that we need to have common ownership. They don't like these, you know, autonomous zones being thrown up in Seattle. Um, The whole woke agenda uh, even if people believe in the value of, of African American lives, which we all should do, they recognize Black Lives Matter as being something of an ideological slogan belonging to an organization. It just didn't appeal to the majority of Americans. And so much as they wanted someone other than Trump, uh, it's not surprising to me, given that cultural background that the Republicans gained ground politically in the House and are holding on to the U.S. Senate. I mean, what a shock.
1: And Trump increased his percentage and numbers among black voters and Hispanic voters. When you've mm-hmm. had the media for four years trying to portray him as a racist and a Nazi, uh, I think these you know, conservative middle American folk who happen to be black or Hispanic, as you said, say, you know, we're, we're not going to have any of this. This is yeah. ridiculous. Um, you know, they supported Trump
0: I in large day. numbers. In large numbers, yeah, larger. Actually, he gained ground among minority voters, and particularly, it was interesting. African American men, um, he upped his uh, uh, percentage considerably. And I think African American men are really important bellwether culturally for us, because you know they are on the one hand supposed to be on the side of progressive liberalism or socialism, but on the other hand, they're in the crosshairs of feminism and all sorts of other things that target them as men. And uh, it's interesting to see uh, that African-American men have minds of their own and are not just gonna be bullied into saying, you ain't black if you don't vote for me.
1: And you could even go back to uh, some of, uh, you know, black statesmen's views on immigration. You know, Barbara Jordan, who would now, uh, her calls for restriction, uh, which in her view was to help the American worker, both black and white. Uh, That would be seen as racist by the woke Party now, but I think that resonates with a lot of you know working black people is again, we might uh, disagree with Trump on trade and certain issues, but those working class Americans see, hey, at least he's trying to keep jobs here and not send them to China, uh, and they pull the lever for him.
0: Yeah, exactly. I appreciate the reminder of Barbara Jordan, a great Congresswoman from Texas, a liberal Democrat icon really of that era of leadership. Her views now would be derided as racist and fascist because she didn't want open borders. Stunning change of attitudes in the Democratic Party. Okay, so a lot of people um, expected that Joe Biden would win because that's what the polls told us. And well, maybe he's just barely doing it in the electoral college. Um, But they also thought that meant a mandate being given to all the policies that he and his party stood for. Um, I'm getting a great question here from one of our ThinkSpot participants is coming to me live here. Um, Let me just read this to you guys and see what you think. One of our friends uh, who's watching says, in terms of a mandate to govern, to what extent do you believe the discrepancies in election results will affect the Biden agenda, assuming he is elected president? Does this pose a threat to the Democratic Party's unity? Will moderate representatives and senators be less likely to side with the Biden agenda out of fear of losing reelection come the next, next election cycle? Very interesting. Any comments on that? Mandate.
2: Well, it, I mean, there, there, there's two questions. Let me try to address each one quickly. If you, at this point, there is no evidence that there's going to be any substantial change in any of the vote totals. Some things are going to happen, and who knows what's going. To, but if that happens, he has a pretty decisive victory. He has five million votes and 306 to 230. Those are that's a pretty substantial victory. Now, a mandate maybe would require more than that, and it would have to be more, even more decisive. I think the second question is the more interesting one. What is the Biden agenda? So it has to be something that's possible. If Biden knows, and he's a senator, he knows Mitch McConnell well. If it's 51 to 49 in the Senate and 51 is the Republicans, the Biden agenda is going to be pretty tentative. He would like to have some successes more than he would like to go to the mattresses and fight with Mitch McConnell. Whereas in the House, a lot of people would just like to fight and still lose. So we heard from Kamala Harris today about what, the, what, what some Biden agenda, I guess it was yesterday, what some Biden agenda might be. Uh, I think it depends what the Biden agenda is going to be. I actually expect that, that given the equivocal nature of the results in the Senate. So it's not that he doesn't have a mandate, he just doesn't have a Senate.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. And you know it may be a, a great blessing to Joe Biden uh, if the Republicans maintain the Senate, because then he won't be obliged, politically speaking, in his own party to to drift left. He'll tack to the center to get Republican votes, which means he'll be more popular. It sounds an awful lot like Bill Clinton.
1: Bill Clinton, of uh, you know what a success for the Democratic Party running uh, in the center. Uh, some of his, you think of uh, things that he did well that appealed uh, to centrists, such as welfare reform there, uh, such as uh, a crime bill uh, to challenge the increasing Joe crime Which Joe Biden rate.
0: supported and now seems to disavow.
1: Yeah, now it's a white supremacist crime bill, though it was a bipartisan, liberal, conservative. Everyone agreed that this was a good idea. Um, but, you know, Biden is obviously capable of running to the center, uh, as he tried early on in the debates, uh, to point out that he worked with, um, you know, back in the day with segregationist senators and still got good things through, of course, Harris tried.
0: Oh, uh, that was ha- unforgivable.
1: Right. But the overall point is, hey, I can work with people and try to get, uh, something good for the good of the country done, even if I don't agree with them. Uh, that's Joe Biden's. That's his heartland, I think. Uh, and who knows, he might even be somewhat successful if he can stick to that and not let the AOCs of the world uh, pull him to a new Green New Deal and this, that and the other.
0: Mike, will the Democratic Party go into civil war now?
2: Well, uh... I'm also interested whether the Republican Party is going to go into civil war now. Oh, so, well, tell me about both. Well, my my good friend Walter Block uh, a couple of days ago published a piece in the Wall Street Journal blaming the darned libertarians for costing Trump the election. And so there there may be, and, uh, full disclosure, I am a libertarian. I ran for office this time as a libertarian and didn't win as a libertarian. So I, I think that both the Democrats and the Republicans are going to see some reshuffling, and the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party is going to take place between the urban areas and a lot of the rural areas. Apparently, there was already a uh, conference call on whether a number of people spilled the beans. It's supposed to be confidential. But with people yelling at each other about socialism and apparently sharp words were exchanged that's hard to imagine but sharp words were exchanged so yes there is there is real dissension within the democrats and some of it's about direction so i think the whatever else you think of him the good thing about biden is that this the centrism is not an artifice that's actually his instinct And that was true of Clinton also. So whatever you think of both of them, their instinct was to try to get legislation passed. And that, I think that Barack Obama was an incredibly bad president, not because of the things that he did that people disagree with, but his unwillingness even to try to get legislation passed, just to blame the Republicans and to go to make speeches to big crowds of adoring audiences. So whatever else Biden does, he is not like that.
0: Yeah. Well, President Obama was a good talker, better talker than a lot of them. He was a good reader. (laughs) He was a good reader. Yeah. But, you know, I think I disagree with you about Joe Biden versus Bill Clinton. I think Bill Clinton's instincts were centrist. I think what I see with with Joe Biden is ambiguity. Um, He may have had a centrist heart, you know, in previous decades, but I think that he has really succeeded uh, with getting the vice presidency in the first place and now running for office by being unclear uh, and being an empty vessel into which people could imagine pouring different things. I mean, he was for the Green New Deal and he was against the Green New Deal. I mean, which is it? He was—he is against fracking, he's for fracking. He's, he's putting all those fracking workers on the road to eventual unemployment, or he's not. Um, he, he's trying to be anything because I think, I'm not sure he has a centrist uh, instinct. I think he's just an empty vessel and depends upon which way the wind is blowing. Well, Maybe that that's case, not fair.
2: It, we'll see, but if he is a pragmatist, then it is pragmatically true that he does not have the Senate.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so here's a question coming from one of our, our participants today, one of our viewers. What does a Biden presidency and a Republican Senate look like in terms of actionable policy? What are the executive orders on the table for Joe Biden? And should we be afraid of them?
1: We should be afraid of executive power as exercised by a Biden administration as he appoints and rewards various minions and lefties out there with positions in government, because we all know that um, though Congress is our legislature, most of what governs us day to day comes from the administrative state. From these administrative agencies. Regrettably
0: true. Regrettably true.
1: And his power to appoint the heads of these agencies and uh, to continue to let the administrative state run loose, uh, as Trump has not been able to tame it. And it's, you know, granted, that's quite a Herculean task for anyone, much less someone who can become easily distracted with things. Um, Yeah, we do have reason to be concerned.
0: President Trump tried to reverse DACA, which was just an executive order, and try as hard as he could, he just couldn't do it, even though it was only executive order. So I guess Joe Biden won't have to reverse that one. But what about looking further afield? Are we going to jump right back into an agreement with Iran?
1: Well, you know, Joe Biden says he's going to jump back into several agreements. Uh, with uh, jump back into who? Jump back in uh, to the Paris Accords on the climate. Um, I do think rather necessarily an agreement with Iran, I think you'll see more war hawks rattling sabers. Uh, We likely see more American troops deployed uh, as we seek to rebuild the world in our image, which, you know, many hoped Trump could break us of that habit. At least he talked a good talk. But, you know, unfortunately, he staffs his administration with war hawks and neoconservatives. He didn't know who was who. Fair enough, Uh,
0: because he was out. He came from outside and he didn't know who the Warhawks were. He just thought they were, you know, conservatives or something. But I mean, he was one of the few Republican candidates in our lifetime who talked like, uh, you know, a dove.
1: No, he did. And he I can remember him on the stage in the early debates being the only one of all the Republican candidates to challenge the Iraq war and say what a horrible decision that was and how it destabilized the entire region and made a mess, and no one else would raise their hand and uh, agree with him. Uh, he talked a good talk. And granted, I suppose because the neoconservatives have held these positions for so long and uh, the liberals that there's not exactly a, a deep bench to go to for uh, you know a paleo-libertarian or paleo-conservative uh, to put in some of these positions.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know going back to the Republican Party uh, contentions we were mentioning before, Mike, it'll be very interesting in these next four years to see how that sifts out amongst Republican candidates for president next time around because there are some like Nikki Haley, who really want to pick back up on uh, probably the George Bush agenda of assertion of power overseas, and others who, like Rand Paul, who really don't. Um, w- we should be watching with interest among the Republicans on that point. The Democrats seem less interesting on that point. Pretty much wherever they see an external crusade, they want to send in, you know, forces.
2: As long as there's an international representation exactly. and, we, and we mostly fund that, that organization.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. So uh, I'm going to turn the corner to a few economic issues in our remaining time that we have. We can probably take another 10 minutes or so here. But um, sitting here on the far side of the continent uh, in California, I just have to point out to our friends across the country who may not be aware of this, that really fascinating. Talk about coattails. This is a different kind of coattail. In California, we always have all sorts of propositions on the ballot. And of course, Californians voted by a margin of two to one for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, favorite daughter of the state of California, born and raised in Berkeley, you know, uh, interestingly enough, like myself. Um, And those people, although they voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and all the Democrats in the state legislature, they voted uh, against the views endorsed by those people on a bunch of propositions. For example, uh, last I checked, Proposition 15 uh, had failed, which was uh, hiking taxes on business property Uh, They had voted against an attempt uh, uh, to limit the voting rights of felons. They had uh, crushed rent control. They had voted for Prop 22 which was vindicating the rights of independent contractor workers for Uber and Lyft and similar organizations. Uh, These are things that, that were supported by the Democrats whom they otherwise voted for. And so this went so far in California that uh, our colleagues down at the California Policy Center started speculating, could it be that Californians are free market conservatives who think they're Democrats? (laughs) Interesting point. But looking ahead now to maybe more national economics, um, I noted that on November 1, Kamala Harris, again, our California favorite daughter, she posted a video clip to Twitter in which she said uh, that America needs to strive, not, to strive not for equal treatment of individuals, but for equity. Equitable treatment, she said, means we all end up at the same place. So uh, you were a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission. If we have a administration which argues that we have to make sure that all Americans end up at the same place, what does that mean for economic policy?
2: There's two ways to try to achieve it. One would be at the equality of opportunity stage to handicap the able and to make sure that we, and I've actually, there there are philosophers that have made this argument. Um, So you shouldn't, smart people should not read to their children because it's an unfair advantage. And a lot of other people don't get read to, and so I should not read to my children. Now, most people are not so idiotic that they actually carry that as far as their own children. But in the abstract, is, this is what is being argued here. So we should stop having good schools. So we should stop having magnet schools. We should outlaw private schools in general and to School make sure it's bad because some people get to do well. And that's not fair. We, may, we have to make sure everyone does badly. So one way would be to <laughs> handicap on the way in. And so equality would ensure that things are equally bad for everyone. The other would be to try to put the handicap on the other end, and that is we'll redistribute the income that results from market processes. And maybe it's true that market processes are pretty good at solving the problem of poverty. So my friend Deirdre McCloskey has written about the great enrichment, the fact that more people have gotten out of poverty. And this is in the the last couple of decades than in the previous history of humankind but there's more inequality. And so what we need is to make sure that everyone has the same level of income. And the way to do that would be to take money from the wealthy and give it to the poor. Now, none of that is an economic policy. There's no hope of any of that getting through the Senate, even if
0: the Democrats take it. That's just nonsense. Okay. You really think so? Even even if Democrats have a one or two vote margin in the Senate? No, I, I can't imagine
2: that they would, even if they have a one or two vote margin, and even if the nuclear option is taken to the point of policy where a majority is enough, there's a lot of senators who realize that they would not win in the next two years from now if they support those policies. So the, the, the Democrats have to play a bit more to the center in the Senate, at least. The House is likely to go that way. So there's going to be legislation introduced in the House, it's going to fail in the Senate, and Kamala Harris is going to try to talk it up. But I I am not very concerned about that particular agenda being acted on. But it is remarkable that those were just code words. Those are things that that the left often uses to justify, let's make sure there is no excellence in schools, that's disproportionate, and let's make sure that we can redistribute income. It is an incredibly radical agenda. No country in the world, including their Nirvana, Sweden, looks anything like that. Sweden is 100% vouchers on schools. It's 100% school choice. So they, Sweden went and they looked over the precipice down into the depths of socialism and said, I don't think so. So in the 1990s, they sold off all their state owned enterprises. And Sweden now as a number of like the heritage index uh, shows. Sweden is one of the most capitalist countries in the world. So the, the, our Democrat friends are just out of date when they talk saying, let's be more like socialist Sweden. I, Sweden is fine with me because they're a capitalist country. There are more billionaires per
0: capita in Sweden than in the United States. They are fine with inequality. Wow. I mean, that's encouraging, although surprising. And it probably upends a lot of the expectations of our friends on the left. I mean, I find your comments reassuring because of the tempering effect of the Senate and so forth. But I nevertheless find it stunning that we have a likely vice president who is actually mouthing nostrums that I'm not sure Democratic leaders have really been so bold about. Making everyone equal in outcomes and income is what she is espousing.
2: And if you look at life expectancies, there's at least a 20% chance that 78 year old Joe Biden doesn't serve out his term. So we may have a president who espouses those things.
0: We may well. Um, Now what's the, (laughs) we're gonna stop here soon, but getting kind of legal and technical again, one of you probably knows the answer to this. Um, How long would Joe Biden have to remain in office before, let's say, resigning for health reasons, um, and Kamala Harris step up in the presidency that would leave her eligible to run two more times? Isn't Mm -hmm. there like a little over the halfway point that she could?
2: I don't know that. The only time I know that it's been relevant was Lyndon Johnson. He certainly ran again after having won once, but he didn't serve
0: very long.
1: Yeah, he didn't serve very long, right? We need to get her a copy of In All Fairness. Uh, who do. I believe We have an editor on the call with us. <laughs> there you go. Now, that was a great book. And that's just important from uh, law, from economics, public policy, about what is equality. And do we look at it as Hayek with an equality of opportunity? Or do we look at it as that little cartoon that Harris published where we have to all end up at the same spot? I mean, that's just ridiculous on its face. So should I be vice president of the United States so I can be equal with her, end up at the same place? Uh, It it reminds me, uh, there's a story of a theologian, R.C. Sproul, who uh, was on a train with a young girl who had been to a New Age conference. And he asked her, he said, well, what did you learn? And she said, well, that I am God. And R.C., rather than argue with her, just said, You don't really believe that, do you? She's like, no, I don't. And I think that's the same thing with these guys.
0: This is a great book. Um, I point out that both of my colleagues on this call have uh, chapters. I think Mike has two chapters in this book. Yeah, it's worth considering. And, you know, the big principle to me that's at stake in the advocacy of uh, economic equality is that the amount of state power necessary to fully implement it is so vast and so uh, uh, subject to abuse that it inevitably leads to tyranny.
2: The only solution is to adopt upfront the fiction that we are all equal before the law. The law must treat each of us equally, whether we're poor or wealthy, whether well, we're black okay. or white. That's
0: good, we want that. Well,
2: that's, the, that's, that's all we can manage. Anything yeah. else means that we are having a system dominated by large corporate interests, by unions, mm-hmm. by special interests, and they're going to get to play favorites. By so military, I always propose what I complex. I propose what I call the Munger test. So my colleagues will say, oh, the state should do that. Really? So you mean Donald Trump should do it? Because there is no state. What you mean is systematically elected officials. And if maybe it's not Donald Trump, it's Nancy Pelosi. So the Munger test is... If you want the state to do something, take out the word state and put in Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi. If you still believe it, go for it. So that's actually pretty similar to my good friend P.J. O'Rourke's test. So I have to admit, I got it from him.
0: Pretty clever. Pretty clever. We also from here at Independence, we have another book coming out called New Way to Care, Social Protections that put families first, which addresses the whole morass. Hey, you've got copies of it. Uh, it's worth considering this book, too, in the policy debates that are coming up because we propose through this book, uh, authored by John Goodman, uh, who is also our senior fellow, uh, ways of handling uh, not only health care, but entitlements that can put the socialist policies that have been adopted on the road to retirement and put Americans back on the road to self-sufficiency in the long term. Well, okay, this has been a great conversation, uh, gentlemen. It's really been fun talking with you. you. Uh, I especially appreciate Mike Munger's uh, reference to P.J. O'Rourke because it just so happens that later this month, on November 17th, we are actually hosting another live stream broadcast here from the Independent Institute uh, with P.J. O'Rourke and my colleague Mary Thoreau uh, on P.J.'s book, Cry from the Far Middle. And uh, that'll be pretty fun uh, to hear uh, Mary and P.J. O'Rourke talking. So join us on November 17th for that. Um, thanking all our friends around the country and even overseas who have joined us for this conversation today, including all of our friends on ThinkSpot. Um, Thank you to Professor Michael Munger of Duke University. We're so grateful for your contribution. Thank you. uh, We hope that the Munger test gets wide (laughs) use. (laughs) And thank you to William J. Watkins, Jr. uh, for all your contributions to our work and for your part in this interesting conversation today,
1: Bill. Glad to do it.
0: It's a pleasure to have both of you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Independent Outlook, coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. For more resources, visit independent.org. We have a lot for you to help keep your mind fresh and show new directions that get beyond a lot of the impasses of today's politics. From the Independent Institute, thank you all and have a great day. And also, oh, yes, may God bless all the veterans who served us over the many years here on this day of their remembrance. Okay. Goodbye, everybody, and take care.